Hallelujah. Lord, we bless you. We magnify your holy name. We exalt you, Jesus, as our King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we thank you so much for the presence of your spirit here this morning. That he indwells us, but that he's also among us. Thank you, Father, for opening the eyes of our spirits that we may see and know who we are in Christ like never before. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul said, inspired by the Holy Ghost, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Folks, I believe that this next week, this upcoming week, is the most important time in our history compared to something as important as the signing of the Declaration of Independence. This week will determine which direction our country goes. We thought we had settled that in November of last year, but apparently, apparently not. This week will determine how the church lives in its last days. It will determine whether or not good people are willing to stand up and do what's right. Now, I know I'm setting myself up for a, a pastor's mailbox experience. But folks, this week will determine whether or not America goes the way that God helped the founding fathers to set it on course or if we'll be given over to socialism. I don't believe we can overemphasize the importance of this week. I wish I had something from God on it. I wish I had something that he appeared to me or a vision or dream or something that showed us the outcome but I don't have that. What I do have is the witness in my heart that I had going into the November presidential election. The witness I had would be that Trump would win the election, and I still have that same witness. Nothing's changed on the inside of me. And I'm reminded of different times in my own life and the way it works with all of us, I guess, where in many cases... We wish we had something more than just the inward witness to go on. But the inward witness is enough. I don't think anybody could legitimately argue that we're not in the last days. These are the last days for the church. These are times that we need to have our eyes open and be aware of what's going on around us. I'm going to read from 
Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus was asked of his disciples, well, we'll just start in verse 1 and get it in context. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? Talking about the destruction of the temple. And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation. This word nation is, is the word ethnos. It means racial division and, and strife. Kingdom shall rise against kingdom. That's talking about territorial uh, government boundaries, state boundaries, and so forth. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And, many, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Notice verse 13 again. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Folks, the things that Jesus told his disciples about, as recorded in Matthew 24, uh, Matthew 24 also Luke chapter 21 has an account of this as well, and there are very few differences in Luke's account and Matthew's account. But really, the only thing that it's telling us to do, the only thing Jesus instructed them to do because of the last days or the signs of the end is just to endure. He goes on and talks in the rest of the chapter some things that pertain to the tribulation, not because the church is going to go through the tribulation, but in this instance at least, he's speaking directly to the Jews. And so he's describing some things that the Jews, the unsaved Jews, will experience at the end time. But it, it strikes me as, as really pretty odd that there is very little instruction given to us with the things that the Bible says is about the end times. Let's look at some other examples. Turn with me over to First Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. This is the breakdown of the family, the without natural affection. Truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Now, as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, these must have been the, the two guys in Pharaoh's court that when Moses went to uh, Pharaoh and said, let my people go, um, he took the rod that was in his hand, threw it down, and it turned into a snake. Well, the Bible says there were two of uh, Pharaoh's advisors there at the same time, and they threw their rods down, and it, theirs became snakes too. Only Moses swallowed theirs up. So this must be who this is talking about. That's the only uh, reference we have to who these people might be. Now, as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men. He's describing the end times, the condition of people in the end times. But let's keep reading in verse 10. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra. You may remember that uh, Lystra was where he was stoned and left for dead, but the Lord raised him up. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and, and all that, are, that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But, here's the instruction, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine and reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It impressed me not many years ago that when Jesus was asked about the end, the records that we have about Jesus talking about the end times, he primarily talks about events. He talks about things that would take place. He tells us to keep our eyes on the nation of Israel. He calls, uses the fig tree as an um, illustration or representation of Israel. And that holds true throughout the whole of Scripture, both Old Testament and New. But he said, keep your eye on Israel, the fig tree, and the other nations of the world. Again, those are things that pertain to events. But when Paul talks about the end times, the things that the Lord revealed to him about the end times, he talks about the, the nature of men's hearts. He talks about the way people live. And again, the only instruction that he really gives us here when we are given knowledge of what, what we can expect to come and how people will be in the last days, how they will operate in the last days, the only thing he winds up telling us is to stand strong, but to endure, stay steady. Keep your eyes on the word and live according to the word no matter what else is going on around us. Now let's look at another. I want you to see 2 Timothy chapter, I'm sorry, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Now we beseech you brethren by the coming of our Lord Jesus and by our gathering together unto him that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter is from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. He's talking about end time stuff. 
he says, he uses as the basis to entreat them or get them to listen to and obey what he's saying. The gathering of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the gathering of the church under the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's got to be talking about end time stuff because he's talking about the rapture. And notice what he instructs us to do. Be steady. Don't be shaken in mind or be troubled. And then he uses some examples of things apparently that were taking place in his day. Apparently somebody had written to the church since he addresses the Thessalonians about it and nobody else we must have to conclude or assume that it was sent to this Thessalonian church. And it was purported to be a, a letter from Paul. And it said something to the effect that things have changed concerning the last days, that the rapture has already taken place and we missed it. And so Paul, to, in, to correct that, tells them, don't worry about anything you receive, even if it's purported to come by me. Because the word is the sure foundation. He's telling them to be, uh, to be steady and steadfast in their thinking and not let their emotions get uh, run away with them no matter what happens, no matter what they hear because God word, God's word never changes. So he said, I beseech you by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now this word falling away is a word that can mean one of two things. It can either mean apostasy, where people depart from the truth or the foundation of the word, or it can mean a catching away. A catching away, a rapture of the church. Now, there were words in the Greek that Paul could have used to mean either one of those things. If it only means apostasy, and, and most people take sides on this one way or the other, they'll say it means a falling away of uh, doctrinally, a departure from doctrine rather than a departure from the earth. So I have to ask the question, if Paul could have used something that just meant apostasy or just meant the rapture or a departure from the earth, then why did he choose to use something that means both? Could it be that both will take place? Folks, the church, the American church at least, is going in some really strange directions as far as doctrine is concerned. They're adopting a lot of this cancel culture stuff, which isn't new. It's been around from the beginning. It's a lot of the same stuff that the devil tried to use against the church in the first generation. But Paul uses a word that can mean a departure from the faith as well as a departure from the earth. I believe it's going to be both. If he's warning us not to be shaken in mind or troubled. 
then there has to be things in the end, at the end times, that will cause people to be shaken in mind and to be troubled. And folks, there's only one thing that can hold you steady in the face of the devil's deceptive actions and operations, and that's the word. God's word never fails. So he says, the day, talking about Jesus coming, I'm sorry, he's talking about the Antichrist rising. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you I told you these things? And now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now letteth, or hindereth, or withholdeth, will be let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him who is coming after the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders. He's simply saying that there's something, there's a force in the earth that keeps the Antichrist from being revealed. I remember in um, hearing Brother Hagin talk about during World War II, he uh, said that he used to teach a lot on end time prophecy in those days. And he said that he continued until they killed his Antichrist. He thought Mussolini was the Antichrist. And then when Mussolini was killed, that kind of makes end time doctrine hard to, to explain. But there's a force in the earth. Paul's saying by the Holy Ghost, there's a force in the earth that keeps the Antichrist from being revealed, keeps him from rising to power. What is that? Well, whatever it is, is going to be taken away. It says, the son of perdition shall not be revealed until that which withholdeth, that, re that resisting power is taken out of, the, out of the way. What is that power? It's the church. It's the presence of the Holy Ghost in the church. Now, some people would say that it's the Holy Ghost himself, but the Holy Ghost is never taken away from the earth. See, if the Holy Ghost was taken away from the earth, there'd be no opportunity for people to get saved during the tribulation. But on day two of the tribulation, remember the 144,000 evangelists, Jewish evangelists, come on the scene. And they get multitudes of people born again. And they stay on the earth for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. If the Holy Ghost wasn't present here on the earth, there would be no power unto salvation for anybody to enter into. So if it's not the Holy Spirit, who is it? It's the church. Now tell me this. How can the church be the withholding force, the spiritual force that's greater than anything the devil can do, a spiritual force that keeps, prevents Satan from revealing his great leader in the last days? There seems to be more present or more power operating in the church than what we know of.
If the church has that kind of power resident in us to keep the devil from doing what the Bible says will take place, talking about the raising up of the Antichrist, then the church at prayer, remember where we started, first, uh, second, first Timothy chapter 2. I exhort, first of all, brethren, that prayers, intercessions, giving, supplications, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all those that are in authority. When the church prays, things happen. When the church prays, things happen. And folks, it seems to me, I don't know if there's any way we could prove this out, but it sure seems to me that the church is praying more now than any time that I've ever known. I wonder if God hears those prayers. I've got to say that's the, the basis for the witness that I have of how things are going to go concerning this last election. We'll know soon. So when the church prays according to the way that God instructed us to, why would God tell us to pray if he wasn't going to answer the prayer? Is not the Holy Spirit's instruction to us to pray, at least in one sense, proof of God's will and plan and purpose coming to pass? And notice that he said, over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that when we pray, the result is that we lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Now, I think that's got to be considered a relative term. Because if the constitutional provisions are carried out and followed through with that the founding fathers gave us, and Trump is declared to be the winner of the election. Half the country is going to lose their friggin' minds. What we've seen before over the last four years is going to be nothing in, compared to what, in comparison to what happens. This is all because of the power that's given to the church. The power that we have in the word of God. I want you to look with me now. To 2 Peter chapter 3. We don't look to Peter very much for end time stuff. Remember the things that the Bible identifies about Peter. The outstanding characteristics of, uh, of Peter as seen in many times during Jesus' earthly ministry is the as daredevil faith. He was the one that wanted to go out and walk on the water with Jesus. They see Jesus walking on the water and the disciples cry out for fear. It's in the middle of the night in the midst of a, a great storm on the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus hears them cry out in fright, he speaks to him and says, don't worry, it's just me. And Peter, seeing him walking on the water, 
I love this about Peter. I wish I was more like him in this respect. Because he said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to walk on the water with you. Peter challenged Jesus to challenge him. And Jesus very simply said, come. And Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, in the middle of his walk, he took notice of the circumstances that he was in. He took notice of the waves that were higher than he probably thought they were when he was in the boat. He took, knowledge of, uh, took notice of the wind and the strength of the wind that, was, that they were in the middle of. And the devil told him, you can't walk on the water. Now, the devil told him while he was walking on the water. But, folks, this is the way the devil works. The devil will bring doubt to you about things that you're already doing. So when we look to Peter, we know that he had this daredevil faith and he was quick to talk about things that he didn't know anything about. Remember after Peter confessed that Jesus was Lord or that he was the Messiah, Jesus says, commends him and says, this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father, which is in heaven. Which tells us that Peter recognized the moving of the Holy Ghost or the instruction of the Holy Ghost through Jesus' ministry here on the earth. But it says from that point, Jesus began to tell them very clearly, not in parables, but very specifically, very clearly, that he would go into to Jerusalem, he would be crucified, and he would be raised up again this, the third day, resurrected on the third day. You remember what Peter did then? He took Jesus aside and said, tried to correct him and say, not so, Lord. It won't be like that. And then Jesus said to him, get thee behind me, Satan, for you savor the things of the earth or physical things rather than spiritual things. I can't imagine that Peter felt real good about what Jesus said. So here's a guy with daredevil faith, quick to speak, and can certainly be led or influenced by the Holy Ghost. But at the same time, he didn't either know or stand upon the truth that Jesus had revealed to him to keep from being influenced by the devil in what he said. It says that when Peter and John were brought before the council, the Jewish leaders in the book of Acts, those Jewish leaders took notice of both of them that they were ignorant and unlearned men. Now that didn't keep the power of God from working through them because the notable miracle had already been performed on the guy at the beautiful gate of the temple in Acts chapter 3. So Peter's all over the place. As a result, he had some of the most tremendous experiences with Jesus while he was here on the earth. And then after, 
for the short period of time, the several years, probably less than 10 to 12 years, that Peter was the head of the church in Jerusalem. But let's see what Peter has to say about the end. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of the apostles, us the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of. Look, some people are willingly ignorant. Some people, Christians included, don't really care to know the truth. They'd rather go through life with their heads stuck in the sand, so to speak. And I guess the reasoning behind that is because if I don't know, then I can't be held responsible. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now a lot of people read these verses of scripture and think he's talking about the flood in Noah's day. But he's not. He's not talking about the flood in, that took place when Noah was here on the earth. Notice it says, in verse 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. The world that then was. Now there are several words that are used, three main words in the New Testament, in the Greek language, that are used to talk about the earth or the world. One is the word terra, T-E-R-R-A, I believe it is, that means the dirt or the physical planet. There's another word that's used, translated world, that means cosmos. In other words, it means the world system. And then the third word that's used in translated world is a word that means time. Now you remember in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 4, where it says Satan is the God of this world. That word world is the word for time. It means Satan is operating with authority here on the earth for a period of time. He doesn't have ultimate authority because the, the Spirit of God in the church prevents him from revealing his Antichrist. And folks, if that were not the case, can you imagine what the devil would have done up to this point? We've seen some incredible things, incredible evil come from world leaders even in our lifetime can you imagine what the devil would would do or would have done if the church didn't have the power the presence of the church here on the earth wasn't enough power to keep him from doing his worst this word world is the word cosmos it means the world system now, folks, the world system didn't change from before Noah to after Noah. 
you've still got the same law of physics taking place. You've got the same physical boundaries and operations that have continued from the time that God created the world in the Genesis account in chapter 1. So when he says the world that perished, he's not talking about the world system that perished. He's not talking about a period of time. He's talking about the, the planet itself. Well, then if it's not Noah's day, when is it? What does it reference? You remember in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. We see the world in chaos, without form and void. Yet the Bible says in, in Isaiah that God didn't create the world without form and void. Well, if he didn't create the world without form and void, but it became without form and void, what happened? That's what Peter's talking about here. Let's go back and read this again, beginning in verse 5. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing up out of the water and in the water. This is a description of, of the world that was without form and void in Genesis 1-2. Whereby the world that then was... In other words, whatever was here, being overflowed with water, perished. Isn't it interesting that the Bible says in Genesis 1-2 that darkness covered the face of the deep. He's talking about water that has destroyed whatever this world was before man came on the scene. But the heavens and the earth which are now. There's a different heaven and earth than what Peter is talking about in the world that then was. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Here's Peter's end-time doctrine. Be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. We have just been introduced by this verse of scripture to the oldest belief concerning the return of Jesus and the millennial reign of Jesus here on the earth. Peter is telling us that just as the six days of creation with the seventh day of rest is the way that God Recreated, recreated the world. In other words, the, the earth that is now. He's saying that man has 6,000 years that correspond to the six days of creation. And the seventh day, the seventh thousand, or the, the thousand years that rep is represented by the seventh day is a day of rest. One of the things that has always bugged me about the rapture or the teaching on the rapture is that, is that nobody knows the day or the hour. Now, let me ask you a question. Do we really believe that the day and the hour of Jesus returned is an arbitrary point in time 
or something that God hadn't made up his mind uh, made up his mind about yet concerning Jesus' return. When we look at the precision of the world, when we look at the the detail of the intelligent design of this earth, do we really think God doesn't have a plan set? Now, I'm not saying that we we will know or should know. But if this earliest known belief about 1,000 years with the Lord is is as a day, and a day is as as 1,000 years, then that gives man 6,000 years on the earth. And then Jesus has the last thousand years with his millennial reign here on the earth. Why don't we know? Why are we not able to calculate the end of those 6,000 years? Well, the most part of it has to do with the discrepancies in the calendars. When God talked to mankind... They followed what is known as the Jewish calendar. I trust you remember that there were 400 years they called the, the silent years between the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. There's a lot of stuff that took place in those 4, 000, uh, 400 years. When the last prophet finishes his ministry in the Old Testament, the world was definitely being influenced by the East. It was from the East that the Persian empires and the Babylonian empires, even the Greek Medo-Persian empires, were all from the East. But when we come on, when Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament, after having been prophesied, correctly prophesied by Isaiah, I'm sorry, by Daniel, to the day or to the very year of when Jesus would be born. Daniel prophesied that 473 years, 483 years, excuse me, from the first commandment to rebuild Jerusalem would be the year of Jesus' birth. And that's why the three wise men came from the east following the star. They knew the prophecy. And God was so exact and is always so exact with the things that he speaks and the plans that he's made. It's hard for me to accept that he wouldn't be just as precise concerning the return of Jesus, the rapture of the church. I'm fascinated by the discoveries of science. I'm not talking about science like the people talk about science in relation to the coronavirus. That's junk science. Well, folks... Well, I'm halfway in it now. Might as well go ahead and step in the other way. 
We're hearing from the news media that the coronavirus is getting worse and worse. And there are more cases, confirmed cases, of corona now than it was earlier in the year, right? Everybody accepts that to be true. Well, then doesn't that prove conclusively that masks, wearing masks and lockdowns don't work? If they were working, it'd be less than, than it was. But oh no, we've got to follow the science. I'm not talking about that kind of science. I'm talking about the real world kind of science that scientists are discovering that prove the word of God to be true. Prior to the 1960s, the prevailing scientific point of view was away from anything that we now know of as the Big Bang Theory. But in the 60s, science made a great leap forward to be able to identify by the motions of the universe, the expansion of the universe is still taking place, that it had to start from some point in time. The most common point in time that is referred to now in the scientific community is about four, four billion years ago. But they've, been, they've ascertained, and as, as I said, it's widely accepted now. There are very few uh, opponents to the Big Bang Theory when it comes to creation. Scientists have accepted from the uh, research and experiments and different things, measuring tools that they've used, that there was a, a, a second, a literal point in time where the universe came into existence. And beyond that time, we call it a second or a moment, it was really quicker than that, but from that moment of creation where God said, let there be light. From that moment, a millionth of a second later, there were four physical laws that came instantly into being. Those four are gravity, electromagnetic force, strong nuclear force, and weak nuclear force. And most of those things have to do with, most of those physical laws have to do with the gathering together of atoms. So within a millionth of a second after the existence of the universe, these four physical laws, these four laws of physics were put in motion and set in concrete, if you will, meaning they, they will never change. Nothing has ever changed them. Nothing could ever change them. How could that be possible without a creator? And much of, if not most of the scientific community has through these revealed truths come to accept God as the creator of the universe. Now we're not going to hear anything about that. We're only going to hear from the ungodly 
ones that promote whatever agenda the media wants to accept. But when you look at those things, and there are millions of things, millions of things that if they were just the slightest bit different, this earth would not be able to sustain life. Somehow or another, science has, through the years, been able to measure or weigh molecules. For example, an oxygen molecule, O2, has a molecular weight of 15. Methane gas has a molecular weight of 14. What that means is gravity holds oxygen to create the atmosphere and to sustain the atmosphere that we have here on the earth. But if they were changed, if those two molecular weights were changed, then methane would be the thing that's held close. And there would be no atmosphere that would sustain life. There are millions of those types of things. that to me prove the, the creator, the existence of the creator and the intelligent design of his creation. And yet God hadn't figured out when Jesus is coming. Now there are parts of this that disturb me. I got to tell you. Jesus said he didn't know the day and the hour. I can understand why that would be necessary because Jesus said anything that we ask in his name, he'd give to us. But then that also presupposes and assumes that God's holding secrets from Jesus and the Holy Ghost. Did anybody really believe that? So I don't have the answer. I got a lot of questions. And I'm certain that my questions will be answered in a moment of time when Jesus comes. But that still brings us back to the oldest beliefs. And, and this is traced back to the Jewish rabbis. It's traced back even further than that to Moses. And that theory is that there are 6,000 years for man and 1,000 years for the millennial reign of Jesus. Why are we not able to calculate 6,000 years from the beginning? We can. See, if we were able to calculate those 6,000 years from the beginning, then we'd know exactly when Jesus is coming. But there was one little hitch, and that is from the time of the crucifixion, which was the pivotal point in the history of the world and mankind. From the time of the crucifixion, there's been a pause in, the, in God's celestial timer, and that pause is the church age. The Bible doesn't tell us how long the church age will last. And since we don't know how long the pause button is hit, 
then we're not able to identify the time with any accuracy to Jesus' return. So what does that mean for us that are in the last days? Well, Paul told us not to be shaken in mind. Paul told us to continue on in the truth of the word that we've heard. And Peter tells us, these are th- tells us about these things that we need to know. Apparently, he's saying, in effect... If God destroyed the world that was before this world with water, why should we think it a strange thing that he destroys this world at the end with fire? So what should we do? Well, remember where we started. We started with praying for the world that we live in. Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1 Here's another injunction to the people of God to pray. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Now what is he talking about here when he's speaking of rain? In Hosea chapter 6 verse 3 it says this. It says, Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning. And he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain upon the earth or unto the earth. So the Bible identifies its terms. Where Zechariah 10, 1 says, ask of the Lord rain. He's talking about praying for the Holy Ghost to work, to move. The Holy Ghost is the early and the latter rain. That's spoken of. You remember in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Ghost falls on the 120 in the upper room, they spill out into the streets. It creates quite a stir. People are hearing them speak in different languages, languages that they're familiar with, and they're speaking the wondrous works of God. Then Peter stands up and preaches. He said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And then talks about the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. So this early and latter rain that Joel identifies, that Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. Zechariah 10.1 tells us to pray for the Holy Ghost. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds... And give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. This word bright clouds is a difficult word. It's only used a couple other times in the scripture. And it means several things. It means lightnings. But you also remember in the Old Testament. Particularly in uh, uh, the ministry of Moses. You remember how that the cloud of glory would lead them, would lead the children of Israel where God wanted them to go. This cloud of glory, this bright cloud, symbolized the presence of God himself. When the people would murmur against Moses and on occasion threaten to to stone him, time and time again, this bright cloud, this glory of God would stand between Moses and the people that would come 
to, to do him harm. So you've got a word that means both power and presence in relation to God. Ask you of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds. He shall give us a manifestation of his presence, and he shall show us a display of his power. I wonder if that was what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel shall be preached in all the earth with power or with, unto a witness, and then shall the end come. Now, what does the Bible tell us that, we'll, that God will do if we pray? Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, and the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain. Those showers of the Holy Ghost are the result of our praying. And then it tells us what those showers of rain will produce. Grass in the field. That grass in the field has got to be talking about a harvest of souls. That's the only thing God's ever cared about. He's not trying to save the planet. He just wants to come into a relationship with the people that are on the planet. So ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and lightnings and give them showers of rain, outpourings of the Spirit of God that result in the precious fruit of the earth. James 5, 7 says Jesus is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. Here's an Old Testament scripture and a New Testament scripture in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Let every word be established. We've got both Old Testament and New Testament instruction, revelation about the power of the Holy Ghost that we should expect to see in the last days. Now turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll finish with this. How is the Holy Ghost going to give us, or how is God going to give us, showers of rain, showers of the Holy Ghost, displays of power or lightnings, and a manifestation of his presence? It would be foolish for us to assume that God's going to do something with the Holy Ghost or through the Holy Ghost that he's never done before. Why would, we, why would any of us expect that? If that was what was planned, if that's what God was going to do, he certainly would have told us, wouldn't he? Otherwise, how would we expect the Holy Ghost or how would we recognize the Holy Ghost when he did whatever God sent him to do? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Notice the word gifts is in italicized. That means the translators added it. In the original Greek text, it reads like this. Now concerning spirituals, plural, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Now that doesn't help us much, and I'm sure that's the reason why the translators added the word gifts. But gifts of the Spirit of God are not the only thing that he's talking about in chapter 12. He talks about the body of Christ. He ends the chapter with talking about ministry gifts. So what does, this what does this mean? What is it trying to tell us? Now concerning spirituals, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. If God didn't want them to be ignorant back then, he shouldn't want us to be ignorant today, should he? So this word spirituals, plural, 
means things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. And that's why Paul talked about the body of Christ because that pertains to the Holy Ghost. That's why Paul talked about ministry gifts in this same chapter because that pertains to the Holy Ghost. But he also talks about the manifestation of the Spirit of God. In other words, he tells us how the Holy Ghost operates. Well, if we're supposed to ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, expecting the power and the presence of God to manifest, and expecting showers of rain or outpourings of the Holy Ghost or manifestations of the Spirit of God that produce the precious fruit of the earth that Jesus is waiting to come back for, then we need to give heed to how the Holy Ghost does work. You know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols even as you were led. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Now there are diversities of gifts. This word gifts is in the original text. There are diversities of gifts but the same Spirit and there are differences of administrations but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. In other words, there are different manifestations of the Spirit. There are different ways that those manifestations operate. There are different ways that God administrates the Holy Ghost to the church. Jesus, as the head of the church, is the, the power behind this. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom... To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith or special faith is the way the Amplified says, by the same Spirit. That would have to be true. He's got to be talking about something other than ordinary saving faith because everybody has that. To another, faith or special faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healings by the same Spirit. Every time in the original text that gifts and healings are made mention of, both gifts and healings are in the plural. There's a multiplicity of gifts to produce a multiplicity of healings. To another, the gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh. Thank God they all work. But all these worketh, that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally, as he wills. So let's back up a little bit. God instructs us. Old Testament and New Testament. In the last days to pray for the rain. Pray for the moving of the Holy Ghost. Pray for a display of his power. Pray for a manifestation of his presence. And the result is God will give us these showers of rain. Or these manifestations of the spirit. To bring forth the precious fruit of the earth. Three of these nine gifts reveal something. Three of these nine gifts do something. And three of these nine gifts say something. So what are the showers of rain that we should expect as the answer to our prayer? Manifestations of power. Manifestations of revelation and manifestations of utterance. Now, how do you think God is approaching this? Do you think that God will discriminate 
when it comes to the power of the Holy Ghost, when it comes to answering the prayer of the church? Do you think he's going to pick one group over here and say, well, they're my special group. I'll let these happen, things happen, these miracles, signs and wonders happen for them. But this group over here, I don't like the way they take up their offerings. Do you think he's going to discriminate based on doctrine? Is God going to look at our church and say, well, they have perfect doctrine so they can have them all. But the Baptists over there are too bad for you. Folks, nobody has perfect doctrine. I may be the closest of anybody that you know, but it's still not perfect. <laughs> How is this last day outpouring of the Holy Ghost going to work? See, I look at this as God just waiting sitting on the edge of his seat, as it were, just waiting for things to be aligned in the way that they need to be so that he can show his power and so that he can manifest his presence. We may look at these scriptures and get a little bit excited about what God is planning to do, excited about God's agenda, but folks, I don't think that is any way able to compare with God wanting to show himself strong on behalf of his people. We will have demonstrations of revelation. We will have demonstrations of power. We will have divine utterance in the Holy Ghost. And those displays of power will be known no matter what takes place in the world, no matter what's going on around us, men getting worse and worse, the events running up to the end that Jesus spoke of. No matter how bad people get, no matter how flaky doctrine becomes, God will overcome anything and everything, any, any shortcomings, and every shortfall and do just what he promised he would do in his word. We will have displays of revelation. We will have displays of power. We will have divine utterance in the Holy Ghost. The only thing we have to compare it to is the early church. And the power of God was in such demonstration there that people just got in position for Peter to walk by and his shadow to fall on them and bring healing to their bodies. We look at things like that and we say, wow, how could that possibly be? Or can you imagine if you were experiencing there in, in physical presence to experience some of these things? But folks, none of that was hard for God to do. God didn't run out of power when he did it the first time. And I believe that we'll even see greater things than what we read about in the book of Acts. Jesus is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. 
That precious fruit of the earth is going to be produced by one and only one thing, and that's the moving of the Holy Ghost in power, in utterance, and in revelation. God wants to do more for us than we want him to do in our own understanding. He wants it more than we do. And because his word is true, it will take place. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray for our president. We pray, Father, for those that are in authority. We pray for congressmen. We pray for elected officials. We pray for appointed judges and all those that are in authority. Satan, we command you to take your hands off the political scene of our country. We refuse to allow you place to steal this election. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of the church, the American church first, Father, that everyone that names the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior would be strengthened with might to do the right thing. That action of righteousness would be more important than political consequence or political fallout. Father, we prayed for you to expose the plans of the enemy and you have done a marvelous job in that. But Father, we don't pray just for the enemy's plans to be exposed so that we can see what he's attempting to do. But that it can be overcome by the prayers of the church. So Father, we thank you in advance for what you shall do to set the church on course to be who Jesus died for us to be and to reach the unreached. Father, we thank you for showers of rain. We've been asking you for the rain for many years. But now as things have progressed, we see more clearly now than ever before the importance of showers, manifestations of the revelation gifts, of the power gifts, and of the utterance gifts. Have your way in us, Lord. We refuse to be shaken in mind. We refuse to be troubled. But instead, we stand strong, believing your word to be true, knowing that forever your word is established or settled in heaven. Father, we delight in you. And we look forward with great anticipation to the wonderful things that you shall do for us, through us, and in us.
Every day, Father, the excitement builds in our hearts, our spirits, that Jesus is coming soon. Help us, Lord. Strengthen us. Uphold us with the right hand of your righteousness that we may cooperate fully with you, that we might do what you would have us to do and glorify the name of Jesus when it is done. These are perilous times, Father, but they're exciting times for us, your people, who clearly see the way that you're operating in the earth. Thank you, Lord. We yield ourselves to you, willing vessels, to be used of you in any way you see fit. We pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Say this after me. I will not be shaken because God's word is true. No matter what happens around us, no matter what others say or do, we stand upon the word and we declare that it shall be even as it was told us. Amen.